I mean, a lot of it's an homage to the Godfather, if we're perfectly honest. You know, I, I see Thomas as a sort of Michael Corleone crossed with a bit of Tommy Shelby from Piggy Blinders kind of thing. And I, th- I think they're so iconic. That, you know, the, the image of the sort of 20s through 1940s American gangsters, everybody, you just got to say those words and you, you're, you can already see the guy, can't you? Do you know what I mean? Hello, friends. My name is Steve, and I'm here today with author Peter McLean. Peter, thanks for joining me today. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it was. It's. Uh, I've been wanting to chat with you for a long time because Priest of Bones was my first grimdark book, and uh, it was oh, like wow. a, it has a special place in my heart. So it's always been a goal of mine to be able to talk to you, pick your brain about it. Oh, that's good to know. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. You say it's grimdark. It's it's a funny expression. I've I've done no end of panels along the theme of what is grimdark with various other authors and reviewers. And absolutely nobody agrees on a definition of what grimdark actually is. But we'll go we'll go with that. It's, it's that kind of thing. I mean, it's, it's heroic fantasy. There's violence, and not everybody's terribly nice in nutshell. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's so it's so funny the reaction that that term has uh to what does grimdark mean to you what's your what's your in your mind, what comes to, your mind? To, to me it means consequences it's it's kind of the antithesis of the um you know rainbows and unicorns everybody lives happily ever after kind of epic fantasy where you you know you you can go fight a great big war and nobody's got ptsd afterwards and nobody's lost any limbs or anything horrible like that whereas a grimdark's the exact opposite of that to me it it doesn't necessarily mean horrible people doing evil things but it means you know that th- there are consequences to your actions and probably not everybody's going to get out alive because you know in history in real wars that's, it just doesn't work like that you know no, so definitely not. That, that's, kind of, that's kind of what it means to me. But as I say, we, we've established it means a different thing to everybody, I think. Yeah, even even some people just really dislike that term for some reason. I, I'm not sure why the why it has this bad reaction from some people. Yeah, I, I don't dislike it. I mean, it's a marketing label like any other. I just I don't find it terribly useful as nobody agrees what it means. It's, it, I don't think it's it's really carrying out its fair share of the work, to be honest with you, but, you know, <laughs> it's a good a label as any. It lets people know roughly the sort of thing they're guessing, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I always, I always hesitate to call things grimdark because everyone, like you said, everyone has a different definition. So especially if it's dark fantasy or what, what you would call it, I think everyone has a different idea. But Yeah, uh, yeah I think so. And it's funny you mentioned PTSD because I think, in priest of bones i think it was a it was a big it was it was a big theme in that book is the the mental scars that the characters yeah. had from all their experiences oh absolutely absolutely i mean that, that's completely done on purpose i think it's yeah. you know well i mean we've been at war for almost as long as i can remember in one shape or form and i think it, it does a disservice to our servicemen and women to pretend that it doesn't have a lasting impact on those who serve because of course it does and I mean, you know, Tolkien knew this, the state of Frodo by the end of Lord of the Rings. But of course, Tolkien was a veteran of the Great War. He'd been there. He he knew what war does to people. And I think people who don't, I mean, I'm not a military man. I've not served. I, just, I did some research. You know, and I, I just think it's something we should do when it's when it's a real thing. I mean, all right, the after effects of magic, you can make whatever you like because magic isn't real. But going to war, unfortunately, still very much is real. And I think we we owe it to when you're running about real things that have happened to real people you owe it to them to do it right in my opinion so yeah yeah no it, it is a big part of the book definitely and the effect the wars had on a lot of the characters yeah and i think it had a it made it made the book uh deeper for me because i i didn't before reading priest of bones i didn't really have a lot of experience reading even fantasy books so okay. it opened doors it opened doors for me what well, can be done because I always thought of unicorns and swords and shields and everyone lives happily ever after and not deep dive deeper yeah. into these kind of themes. So it's it really eye-opening for me. Yeah, I, I think the genre has moved on. I mean, I mean it, that's, it was never all unicorns and everyone lives happily ever after. As I say, I refer back to Lord of the Rings. It's, it's not like that at all. But in recent years, recent-ish years now, I suppose, I'm getting old, I lose track of time. But, I mean, I think David Gemmell started it with his particular brand of heroic fantasy and Glenn Cook's Black Company. Mm. And then, you know, Joe Abercrombie's written some 
fantastic things and George Martin's obviously with Song of Ice and Fire is, you know, you, I mean, I, I read those as they first came out because I'm of a certain age and I'm thinking, oh yeah, this is the Ned Stark show. He's the hero. He's going to, oh fuck, he's dead. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like, okay, th this is a different kind of fantasy novel. You know? <laughs> and I, I think it's just taken off over recent years. <laughs> I mean, you've got people like Anna Smith Spark with the Empires of Dust, which I absolutely adore those books. But the premise is it's Alexander the Great, but he's a demon. And, and it's, it's, it's very, very different to Elf Goes on Quest to retrieve Thing from Dark Mountain. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, there, there's definitely evolution. I, I think the, the genre's not changed because you can still buy plenty of old-fashioned style fantasies if, and that's what a lot of people like and fair play to them you know but the, i think it's broadened and there's a lot more choice than there used to be and uh, yeah stuff like myself and anna and rj barker and ed mcdonald right is is a different type of fantasy it's, it's not i wouldn't go so far as to say it's the new type of fantasy because you can still get the old type but yeah it's, it's another option yeah it's nice to have options yeah for sure yeah so when you started reading, when you started writing this series, did you always intend for it to be four books or did that just kind of come together? <laughs> no, it, it didn't come together. It kind of fell to bits, to be honest. Okay. It was always supposed to be a trilogy, but oh God, I did. I did a panel with Michael Fletcher yesterday, actually. We, we got up to this. I said, what are you worst at as an author? I was like, planning. <laughs> it's as simple as that. I wrote, I ended up accidentally writing a trilogy of four books because I I outline quite substantially before I write. So, you know, I know the plot beats. I know where I'm going. I might make up the bits in between, but ultimately I know where I'm going and the shape of the plot. And I had a 15-page outline for what was then called Priest of Crowns, the third and final book of the trilogy. And I'm sitting there, I'm beavering away, and I, I don't know, 50,000, 60,000 words down. And I'm still on page one of the outline. I think, Houston, we have a problem here. <laughs> I cannot send my editor a half a million word book. She'll knife me. <laughs> so, well, we had to have... I had to have a bit of a full and frank with my agent. And um, we we had a conversation with my editor, Joe Fletcher, at Joe Fletcher Books here in the UK, who's absolutely brilliant and really, really supportive, bless her. And she said, yep, yeah, it needs to be two more books, doesn't it? So I was like, yes, yeah, it really does. Thank you very much, Joe. Chop the outline in half, simple. I'll just write the first half of it. And I looked at that and I thought, it was shit now, wasn't it? it doesn't wait, it just stops. You know, that, that's not a book. <laughs> so, Priest of Gallows took a lot of plot gymnastics to to whip into shape to make it work as a book while you wait for Priest of Crowns, which is now book four that's out this August and really is the last one. I promise this time okay. it really, really is. <laughs> but uh, yeah, oh, I had to move deaths around and great political events had to change and happen sooner and some had to be pushed back and I was like, oh, I'm never ever doing this again. <laughs> Nightmare. So no, it was not supposed to be four books, but it's, it's just kind of worked out that way. I was thinking, I mean, there was a great hoo-ha on Twitter earlier last, oh, last week, I think, about word counts and how long the book should be and oh, everybody got very excitable and hostile at each other for no reason, but I think the story needs to be as long as it needs to be. It's as simple as that. Stories, they're like, stories are a liquid. You know, like, if you're not careful, they'll expand to fill the available space. And <laughs> in this case, this one overflowed. It's as simple as that. So what can you do? But it, it needs to be the, the length that it is. And I say, Joe's been doing this for donkey's years. She knows that. She got it. And thankfully, it's all it's all works out all right in the end. But oh, dear me. Oh, some sleepless nights putting gallows together. I really did. <laughs> so, how do you keep track? Because you, you have to <clears> mathematics <throat> that had to be done for the story when you had when you said it's going to be four books. How do you keep track of all the interactions and characters and world? Oh, I I I keep a story bible, and this is a little trick I learned. I I used to do IP tie-in writing, so I've I've written quite a lot of short fiction for Warhammer, and you know they're very very hot on lore and details and because i mean obviously the you know warhammer fiction exists to sell warhammer models and games of course it does so it's got to be right and i don't play warhammer so talk about a vertical learning curve so i just started writing everything down every every facts facet of lore i learned i was writing down and keeping in my warhammer story bible and i started doing that i thought you know this is actually really handy 
and I'd, I'd, I hadn't done it with my first trilogy, the Burn Man books, and I did get in a bit of a muddle with who's dead and who's still alive with that. I had to keep going back and reading the last book and thinking, can I use this guy or did I kill him? You know? So I thought, oh, I'm not doing that again with a thing the size of Rose Throne. So I wrote every every time I named a character, mentioned a place, described where something was in relation to something else, in the Bible it goes. So it's easy to find. And honestly, it is very satisfying in Word using the strike-through font effect to cross someone's name out when you kill them off. <laughs> <laughs> so spare, spares you from any embarrassing mistakes of you know Lazarus coming back in book three after you'd knifed him in book one, which wouldn't do. You know? <laughs> oh, find every place, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Everything. You know, if, if I say he, he went upstairs from the, this room to the, that room, there's no, that room's upstairs from this room kind of thing, you know? And uh, yeah, it's, it's a good, good little technique. I think that's served me quite well. Saved my copy editor a lot of work as well, no doubt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there must be a lot of work to keep track of all that. Oh, it is. And old oh, copy editors are worth their weight in gold. Honestly, in, in Priest of Bones, I was, spared my blushes by my copy editor who who spotted that the last week before the wedding was a day shorter than it should have been and none of it would have worked because it's that that week the scenes in that week are so timing dependent and i'd just forgotten to <laughs> and i couldn't but i never had such a thorough editor before they sent me a spreadsheet with days of the week on it and what happens on what day i was on oh my God, you know this thing better than I do. You know, I was just like, oh, I mean, it was such such an easy fix that was you just sort of said something like, and then I went to bed the next morning and had a problem solved. But I, I would never have spotted it in a million years. Unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's quite a bit of work. And yeah. uh, so, what what other inspirations? What other things inspired you to write War for the Rose Throne? Oh, gangster movies as much as anything. I'm. I do read quite a lot of fantasy, but I also read an awful lot of crime fiction and thrillers. And I don't really watch a lot of TV and movies, but I do love gangster movies. And I mean, a lot of it's an homage to The Godfather, if we're perfectly honest. You know, I, I see Thomas as a sort of Michael Corleone crossed with a bit of Tommy Shelby from Piggy Blinders kind of thing. And I, th I think they're so iconic that, you know, the, the image of the sort of 20s through 1940s American gangsters. Everybody, you just got to say those words, and you you're, you can already see the guy, can't you? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I wanted to do that because it's funny. I don't know if you've read um, Joe Abercrombie's Best Served Cold. I did. Yeah, I just read that. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's a bit in that where Shank the assassin is on. Oh, I forget whose trail now, but he goes and busts a fantasy opium den and slaughters all the gangsters' men and holds him up by the throat and beats information out of him. And I was like, I want to write about that guy. You know, not the assassin. They've been done to death. The mob boss that he's beaten up. I want to write about that guy in fantasy land because this is the first time I've ever seen him and he's very underrepresented. <laughs> I thought, you know, these are two of my favorite things. I'll just ram them together and see what happens. And you know, Priest of Bones is kind of what happened. <laughs> well, it really worked. I like yeah, the, I, the I take this process yeah. very seriously, you can tell. But... Yeah. <laughs> I like this and this to smash it together and see what yeah, happens. I mean, I, yeah, I think it's, it's easy, especially once you're published and you're doing this at least semi-professionally. It's easy to lose sight of the fact that this is supposed to be fun. You know what I mean? This is ultimately why every author started writing. Nobody thinks, I need to make money, I'll be an author, because seriously, it's one of the lowest paying jobs on earth per hour you put into it. You do it because it's fun, because it's what you enjoy doing. And it, it is dangerously easy once you're doing something for money to let it stop being fun. And then, well, you know, what are you doing it for? You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, uh, so with, with, with the characters, I think everyone loves Bloody Anne. I don't know anyone who doesn't love Bloody Anne. Mm. She's uh, my fault. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Where, where did the inspiration for characters come from? Oh, they just, this is where I always sound a little bit, insane to be honest they just appear in my head fully formed people i don't sort of have to sketch out characters or do character sheets they'll just turn up knock me up the back of the head and go oi 
right about me, Mush. You know? But now I, I wrote Bloody Anne to be the the sort of best mate slash big sister I wish I had. And yeah, she's my favourite character in the books as well. I mean, I know it's Thomas's story, but Thomas isn't the most likable man on earth, to put it mildly. But I, I think Anne's great. I love her a bit in, in her special way. I wouldn't want to pick a fight with her, but you know. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. <clears throat> no, so we're um we're being adapted for TV at the moment, mm-hmm. and I, I know this. You know, it's it's gonna have to change a lot. There is no first person TV, TV drama. It's just not a thing. And I know the scriptwriter feels much the same way, and he's looking to sort of bring Anne forward as more of a major character. So I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing what she does with that. I think that's going to be good. How was how has that process been beginning it adapted? Has that been like a roller coaster? Because I, I would oh, imagine it's absolutely. It I mean, it just came out of absolutely nowhere. So I mean, I mean, just get one thing straight up front: being adapted and being in development do not mean anybody's actually filming a TV show because they're not. You know, hopefully, one day they will be, but at the moment, somebody is writing a pilot script, which is a lot further than a lot of options get. To be fair, so I'm you know I'm really happy with that. But it completely came out of the blue. So apparently, um, a gentleman called David Heyman, who's a very famous Hollywood producer, who made the Harry Potter movies, had somehow, I have no idea how it happened, somehow read Priest of Bones. I can only assume he's a fan of the genre. And he'd obviously phoned somebody at UCA and just gone, get me this. I, I, I really don't know how it happened, but you know, I'm suddenly getting a call from my agent saying, I've got a man at UTA, which I don't know if you know, uh, um, United Talent, one of the biggest uh, screen agencies in the States, mm-hmm. says, I've got an agent at UTA emailing me, asking if you want to talk about a, a TV option. Is like, are you interested? I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Yes. <laughs> of course I am. <laughs> and I had a call with a, the, the chap from UTA. And he's like, oh, you know, Heyday Television are really interested in this, which is David Heyman's TV production company over in London. He's like, oh, do you want me to? Do you want to work with me? Do you want to set up a call? Like, well, yeah, go for it. And I had, um, oh, I must have been, I think, a maximum of a forty-minute phone call with the head of production at Heyday, and I'm, I'm just, I'm sitting here in this this office on the side of my house, thinking, what's going on? People like me don't get to talk to people like you. This is nuts. <laughs> and they bought the option to the first two books and then the pandemic hit and it all just stopped. And I'm like, oh, okay. got paid. I suppose you know, quite a lot of money for a 40 minute phone call. I'm happy with that. And then suddenly it's like, oh, it's awful. I've forgotten her name. But the lady that's writing the script is a very established Hollywood screenwriter. And mm. I, sh- I should have her name written down and I haven't. So I apologize for that. I was like, oh, you know, this person's been assigned to, assigned to the project, as they say, <laughs> and and he's writing the adaptation. I'm like, really? <laughs> okay, lovely. I mean, whether it'll go any further, I have no idea. Um, I hope at least I'll get to see a script at some point, and I don't really, I don't know how it works after that. To be honest, I, don't, I really don't. But it's it's quite surreal to think it it even could happen. Yeah, I mean, that's... What was your yeah, reaction? I mean, loads you of people that? sell... Well, I was a bit cynical about it to start with because loads of authors sell or even give away options and, and nothing happens. You know, A lot of production companies, if there's something they want to make, will go out and buy up the options to everything they can find that's remotely similar so nobody else makes anything competitive and just stick them on the shelf because, you know, peanuts to a tv company but still quite nice pocket money for the author so you think oh thank you very much okay <laughs> move on go on with your day kind of thing but now no, the fact that they've attached a screenwriter people have actually heard of to it i'm thinking hmm. i don't i don't know i mean it, it might go somewhere I'd, let's hope so because no, I'd, so. I'd love to see it on tv i really really would and i think it, it is quite adaptable you know it is it's filmable at not ridiculous money because when I mean, there's no dragons or legions of evil monsters or anything like that, it's just people fighting other people in somewhere that's basically Edinburgh. So it's probably not enormously odorous to shoot, but I, I know nothing about the TV industry at all, to be honest, other than what I've just told you. And most of that I've learned off an agent friend of mine who used to work in Hollywood. So I, I don't know. And so we will see. see. 
if they option it, how long do they do they own it forever, or is there a no? Time oh no, no, no! It's no, it's a rolling yearly thing. So they renewed it for the second year, which surprised the hell out of me because I'm mean, I thought with the pandemic and everything, TV production had just stopped and they'd given up on it. But so the fact that they renewed it was very encouraging. And then when I heard somebody was actually working on it, I thought, you know, I thought, oh, this is amazing. But no, no, it's it's a rolling annual thing. So you know they have to keep electing to keep it. You, you never never sell perpetual rights to anything hmm. no that that really is a rookie error yeah that'd be that'd be a pain yeah uh, oh definitely and, yeah so uh, i know that how do you feel now that the the story is coming to an end with the fourth book what is that feeling like to you well it's uh it's weird because this has never happened before so i'll say i had a trilogy out before but that should have been five book series and the third one just died a death but it just didn't sell so the publisher axed it so effectively mm. this is the first time i've finished a series so you know i abandoned the first thing for dead because well, i've moved on now but yeah so priest of crowns is completely done i finished the proofread last week so i've, I've just got to write the dedication and acknowledgements and that's the last i'll see of it till i'm holding a copy in my hand and it's i mean it's, it's an incredible sense of achievement and accomplishment and it's it's a bit sad in a way too because I've I've lived with these people in my head for four or five years. I I think in Thomas Piety's voice, you know what I mean. And <laughs> I'm gonna miss that. I'm gonna miss Anne, who, not to say, is is basically my best mate, even though she doesn't actually exist. And and it's a bit terrifying. So I'm thinking, well, this has done really done quite well. And it's like, oh god, I've got to do it again now. I don't know that I can. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure I can. I mean. I was reading, obviously doing the proofs, so I was reading Crowns again. And I was thinking, oh, bloody hell, how did I write this? I'm not this good. I can't do this again. And you have to sort of stop and think, yeah, well, I didn't because my editor and, you know, my agent all contributed. And it's the, the final book is never the book you wrote. It ends up being the book you collaborated on with people who were very, very good editors. So I have to keep telling myself that because the prospect of starting all over again in a new world with new people is a bit daunting, to be honest. But I, I think every author probably has this. I don't know. I'll get there, I'm sure. But yeah, it's it's a, a bit of a bittersweet feeling in a way, definitely. But but overall, yeah, I'm just pleased to have done it. I, I have a finished four-book fantasy series that is all published and all concluded and is done didn't get cancelled this time now. so so it's, it's all good is there are there have you thought about writing other stories in the same world like a prequel or after oh i would absolutely love to i think uh, i don't know prequels are a hard sell because it's it's very hard to put any sort of narrative tension in a prequel because you know who's going to live and who's not just purely based on who's in the books you've already read kind of thing I would love to keep writing in the same world. I think that's the conversation I have with my editor as to, I mean, it's, it comes down, everything in publishing comes down to sales. It is business in the end. If there's perceived to be enough demand for it, well, of course I would. It, it wouldn't be a continuation of the story for reasons I'm not going to tell you because Grounds isn't out yet. But yeah. um, it, it could easily be in the same world with some of the same characters potentially or like Jabba Crombie's done the descendants of the 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 characters from the original series so that's an option and it's, it's definitely something I'd like to do but I think I'll probably do something else in between because I think it's going to be a while before my publisher's got the numbers to say yay or nay on that mm. and I don't want to sit and do nothing for two years I just think that's a waste of life and so I'm <laughs> sure I'll come up with something else <laughs> I've, got, I've got a couple of ideas on the burner, but oh, good. we will see. Let's see what bears fruit. Looking forward to what, what you come up with. Yeah. And uh, the it's funny you mentioned the business side of it. I think the cover art is a is a big side of the industry. It, it oh, has yeah. kind of an eye catching cover. Mm. Uh, I I love the the covers on on the series. Oh, that's fabulous! Aren't they? Well, I mean, my original deal was with. Ace at Penguin Random House, and they assigned a cover, an in-house cover artist, a lady called Katie Anderson, who did Priest of Bones and Priest of Lies, and I absolutely adore them both. And uh, unfortunately, Ace didn't continue the series after Lies, but luckily, Joe Fletcher Books at Hachette did, so they're 
the UK editions for the last two books and obviously with US distribution. But I was talking covers with Joe and I was like, can you find out if Katie Anderson also freelances, which nearly all artists do? Because I just love the covers she'd done and I want to keep the same look and feel. And again, Joe absolutely agreed. Reached out to Katie. Yeah, love to. Brilliant. And I, I don't know if you've seen the cover for Crowns yet, but it's it's the best of the lot. It's my pinned tweet on Twitter. It is yeah. glorious. But I mean, the the color progressions are all played for, is all deliberate. You know, the the different central motifs and the differing architectural backgrounds are all deliberate. It's, oh, she's just done a fantastic job. I'll forever be grateful to Ms. Anderson for that. Oh, best covers the series could have had, I think. They suit it so well. Yeah, they're they're really great, really great cover artwork, and it's important yeah. to have good covers. Oh, it is. I think every time somebody says never judge a book by its cover, a cover designer throws himself off a roof. I mean, that's it's literally the cover is literally there to make people pick the book up in the in the store. It's absolutely vital to have a good cover. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> And with uh, with fantasy, what what is what do you enjoy about fantasy? Writing it or reading it or absorbing it? Oh, both. I mean, I, I do I do read quite a lot of fantasy. I mean, I was, I was saying about Empires of Dust is one of my favourite things ever. Hmm. I absolutely adore those books, but they don't read like fantasy. They read like mythology. They're they're Homeric. They're, they're just designed to be read aloud. I think they're incredibly hmm. poetic. But I love, um, oh, what have I read recently? Oh, R.J. Barker's Tide Child trilogy is, but it's a weird thing. I like fantasy that isn't like fantasy, if you see what I mean. I was like, yeah. I, I like Anna Smith's Spark because it's not like fantasy, it's like mythology. I love R.J. Barker's Tide Child because it's not like fantasy, it's like Master and Commander, yeah. but with dragons, you know. <laughs> I like that sort of thing. I mean, Priest of Bones is, isn't like, fantasy it's a gangster novel with a fantasy hat on it that's the kind of thing i like i mean ed, ed mcdonald's raven's mark's got a real kind of wild west flintlock kind of frontier storytelling style to it i i'm not a fan of the the tolkien likes yeah. although i mean to be fair you don't actually get a lot of that anymore but that was i was thinking back in the 80s when i was first reading fantasy you sort of pick up I don't know, sort of Shannara and Eye of the World and that sort of thing. I think well, I read this before. I'm sure I have. You know, <laughs> much much as I love Wheel of Time, but certainly the first book is very much a Tolkien alike. I know I know it differs, goes off in its own, becomes its own thing after a while. But people don't really do that so much anymore. Yeah. And um, oh, and Nicholas Eames is um, Kings of the Wild. You know, that's that's not really a fantasy book. That's Spinal Tap with swords. You know. <laughs> John French's The Great Bastards is, um, oh God, what's it called? Motorbikes. Uh, thing, like thing of Anarchy, can't remember what it's called now, off the TV. Oh, Sons of Anarchy. Sons of Anarchy, that's it, yeah, but they're orcs and they ride pigs instead of orcs. And it's just a genius. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that sort of thing. It's this little... Stuff that doesn't take stuff that either doesn't take itself too seriously or that takes itself extremely seriously is about my wheelhouse. I'm I'm not into sort of middle of the road fluff. I'm, I like it to either be knowingly silly and having fun with itself or really sweeping and epic and bombastic and overblown. <laughs> I I actually called out as books um, death metal opera. Which I knew she thought was wonderful, but that's that's really what they're like. Right. <laughs> I, th I think the only thing I can liken them to is um, Al Scott Baker's Second Apocalypse, mm. which is one of the darkest, most disgusting, most bombastic things ever committed in the name of fantasy. But bloody hell, it's good. You know what I mean? Oh, wow. <laughs> really so, is. Uh, I'm reading a. Uh... The darkness that comes before now. So. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. First one in the series. Excellent yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah buckle up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I was. I keep hearing how dark it is, and I thought, well, it's it's not too bad yet. I mean, it's, I'm only a few mm. hundred pages in. So. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Holding holding on tight. And uh, so for uh, for casting for the show, if it does come to happen, hopefully, hope you know, we all hope it does. 
have you thought about casting in your mind have you casted oh i'm i'm bad at actors i watch so little tv i think being silly and saying money no object tom hardy for thomas party absolutely mm. definitely he did i don't know if it ever aired in the states but he had a tv show over here called taboo Mm-hmm. which was set in about 1780, I think. Honestly, I, I watched that and I thought, fuck me, somebody's filmed Priest of Bones without telling me. It's so, the aesthetic is so perfect for, for my stuff. I was like, oh, I'd, I'd love to have it look like this. You know? But other than that, I mean, who would you cast as Anne? I've got no idea, to be honest. I'm not very, not very good at actors. But I don't know, Ailsa, again, if we're throwing the money problem out the window, Shopachetti, I think, would be absolutely perfect. But, you know, I don't know. Somebody suggested somebody for Fat Luca to me a little while ago, and I can't remember who it was now. But, yeah, he looked, the guy looked the part, whoever he was, anyway. <laughs> but, no, I'm, I'm not a TV or movie watcher as a rule. If it's, if it's not old Jimmy Cagney gangster films, I've probably not watched it. <laughs> What is your favorite uh, gangster movie? What what is your oh, you, oh the Godfather the, yeah. the Godfather one one and two which are basically all part of the same movie yeah they only made two yeah you don't there isn't there isn't a third one that's a myth <laughs> I was about to ask you about that there is no third Godfather movie <laughs> and now Godfather and Godfather Part Two are absolute perfection and I'd I'd say Goodfellas is is probably the first runner up but you can't top the best. Yeah, it's Goodfellas is up there too, but yeah, Godfather is it's hard to beat. Hard oh, to beat it's absolutely that. iconic, isn't it? You know? Yeah, fantastic oh, yeah. filmmaking. Definitely love it. <clears throat> I, I've seen you mention before about uh, history, UK history specifically. Are there any points in history that inspired plots in the books? Yeah, well, not plots exactly, but settings definitely. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I. I'm quite interested in the Tudor period because it was a fascinating period of English history and an awful lot of change and a lot of stuff going on then. Um, that's that's the main aesthetic in Ellenburg. It's, it's fairly Tudor-esque. But in the later books, when you go to Dansburg, it's more Regency. Mm. And I had, I had this conversation with a historian who I thought was going to get really annoyed with me, but he didn't actually. He just got it. And I've done that to show the the social gulf between the, the poor in the provinces of Ellenburg and the extremely wealthy in the capital in Dansburg. And I, I think you, you have to go with what people recognize and what, what people can relate to. I mean, there, there's a trope called history is unrealistic. And and it is because it, it looks wrong a lot of the time. I mean, when I've got the incredibly wealthy people having a banquet in Dansburg, I could have done it as a Tudor banquet, because I know what a Tudor banquet looks like, but an awful lot of people don't. And it would have looked weird and silly and a bit gross. So by doing it as a Regency banquet, which is the sort of foods people by and large recognize and what people would say, oh, that's posh. Now, yeah. you know, it was a basically silver service kind of thing. It it shows you the difference and I thought, this is probably the way to go. So, yeah, I mean, in in Ellenburg, it's basically the 15th century. And in Dansburg, it's the early 18th century. But it doesn't matter because I'm not writing historical fiction. You know, it's it's a way of showing that that social divide, which is more the point I was trying to make. But I think to be able to do that thing, you've got to actually know the periods you're using, even if you're not using them remotely correctly. But, you know... <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, no, I'm a big fan of social history books. I'm not, I'm not one for kings and queens and battles and things. I like the, you know, how much a baker earned in 1550 and what he would have had for his dinner and where he would have got it and all this kind of thing. You know, that, normal people in history fascinate me far more than royalty and lords and ladies do. Yeah, because the, yeah, that's and yeah, that that's what you really. I think that's what we re, that's what we relate to more is just a regular yeah. everyday person. Oh, exactly. Of course it is. Of course it is. Yeah. Yeah. And have you noticed a difference in the reaction to your books from UK audiences and US audiences? Is there, is there a difference there? Uh, I don't know, really. I don't, mm, I think they've sold better in the UK than they did in the States. Hmm. I don't know if that's because 
obviously I'm British. They're written with a very British voice. Hmm. I think, I don't think American audiences necessarily have quite the tolerance for swearing and violence in fantasy books that British audiences do. Could I could be doing a disservice there. I don't know, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've got, and a lot of very loyal American fans, but I, I don't think it's as mainstream over there. I mean, Brandon Sanderson is vast in America, isn't a huge following, and much, much less so here. Whereas I think it took Abercrombie quite a while to crack the states at all, whereas he was huge here almost from day one. So it's, I don't know if it's just differing tastes or it's mar- how foreign authors are marketed in different countries. I don't know. Really, but... Yeah, I was, I was curious about that, about how the different audiences react differently. And have you ever written a scene or a storyline that you said, well, should I, is that too far? Have you ever questioned yourself? Yeah, you haven't read Priest of Gallows yet, have you? No, yeah, I'm, I'm no. on my way. You'll know when you get there. Okay. Now, my, my, my lovely wife, Diane, is my first reader. I just, she's not even really a fantasy reader, but she does like crime thrillers. So, you know, there's a lot of crossover. But she's always my first reader. She sees everything even before my agent does. And she was reading um, the submission draft of Gallows. And uh, I tend to sit in the library in the house of an evening. And she sits in the TV room because she watches TV and I don't. But she was reading this thing. And she suddenly, she got up, stalked into the room, fixed me with a look and said, you horrible, horrible horrible man and marched out again i was like i know exactly which bit you've just read <laughs> but uh yeah luckily, luckily my editor loved it so it's, it's still there it's still grossing people out to this day <laughs> so yeah that's book three and you'll know when you get there <laughs> okay <laughs> so and when someone has a reaction like that, do you like, yeah, I, I, I got yes! it. Yeah. <laughs> I nailed it, yes. Yeah, <laughs> <clears throat> and yeah you... I, I don't yeah. I don't write gratuitously horrible things. I'm not writing horror novels, but it makes a point about Yeah, don't want to spoil it for you. Yeah. About an institution more than about a person, really, and what is considered okay within this institution. And you're reading it thinking, ooh, really? <laughs> You know, <laughs> so and, yeah, well, Joe thought it worked, so it's all good. Oh, that's good <laughs> stuff. That's good stuff. And you know, another thing that I really liked about about Priest of Bones of the series so far is the is the magic system. There's not a ton of magic, and the magic that there is, it's 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 powerful, but it's not you know mm. world changing. It's it's kind of like ground level. Yeah, and oh, that's what I wanted. I mean, these these are common men and women and grunt level soldiers and i wanted grunt level magic you know the, mm. it, it's deliberately it's called the cunning because i mean in, in old english history there were people called the cunning folk and they were your, your herb women and your midwives and sort of people that did things that the church sort of looked a bit sideways at but just about allowed because it wasn't doing anything particularly forbidden and everyone was sort of a bit respectful of them and a bit scared of them kind of thing but yeah so I, de- I I wanted it to be completely mysterious. I don't like magic systems anyway, where everything's explained to the nth degree, because to me, then it stops feeling like magic and starts feeling like physics or chemistry or something. But the fact that, obviously, the, the books are first person, so they're narrated by Thomas. You only ever know what Thomas knows, and he doesn't actually know a hell of a lot, because he's not an educated man. You know, he's, he's the son of a bricklayer from the from the slums of Ellenburg, who was apprenticed at 10 and sent off to war at 20. So he's not had much of an education. And he sees the boy do this completely inexplicable weird shit. And that's how it stays. It's completely inexplicable weird shit because he doesn't know what he's looking at other than he's he's not very keen on it. (laughs) But of course, it turns out to be useful. So hmm, kind of makes his peace with it. Like people made their peace with gunning folk in days of old, which is exactly what I was going for. Hmm. Yeah, another thing that, because I, I was reading a lot of uh, management books, so was, but when I was reading Priest of Bones, I was reading like, you know, management stuff and kind of like some self-help books. And yeah. uh, the, I saw some parallels in Priest of Bones because Thomas talks a lot about pulling levers, pulling the right levers. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, where, he, where did that does. come from for you? As oh, a... I, I used to be senior corporate management and I've, I've done a lot of management courses. 
And I, I used to work for a gentleman who was in a previous life, very senior in military intelligence, mm. who was my director at the time, who basically taught me everything I know about leadership. He was absolutely marvelous. All the quotes in the book attributed to the captain are actually quotes from my old director. <laughs> He knows this. He's he's quite cool with that. But yeah, yeah. No, we're still sort of loosely in touch. But there is a lot of that sort of thing, and I'm trying to sort of show that Thomas is doing this stuff instinctually. Obviously, he's not been taught anything other than the brief bits of coaching he had from the captain during the war. But there isn't time to do sit-down management coaching when the cannon is shooting at you. So it's, it's just these little snatches here and there that he's picked up on and thought, oh, I can use that, and uh, has adopted it into his style of gang leadership. That's very effective, and it works. And it, But it was funny that I, I could see those parallels between what Thomas was saying and doing and, and the other books I was reading at the same mm. time. I thought that. So uh, I wanted to ask still, you about that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and now it's, it's funny. I mean, uh, I, I don't want to sort of drop any spoilers, but as the series progresses, an, an emerging theme is that government and organised crime don't look a hell of a lot different when you look at them closely. You know, so that there's a lot of that sort of thing going on, and the, you know, I think you could apply it to corporate management styles as well. It's, it's not a million miles away, is it, at the end of the day. No, that's yeah. It's one's legal and one's not. Yeah, exactly that. So, if if you were a character in your books, would you survive? Well, me as I am in the real world, no, <laughs> I wouldn't have thought so. No, <laughs> not for long, anyway. <laughs> <clears throat> no, I'm not bad in the fist fight, but I don't think I can. Uh, not much cop with swords. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so with. Um... I noticed in your in your biography that you work in the in on the IT field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah I've, I've uh, just moved into cyber actually, but I've done um, data center hosting and outsourcing for the oh, best part of thirty years now. So I think every because I, I used to work in IT, and everyone has a funny story, a funny experience working in IT. Do you have any funny stories or? Oh, I've got some alarming stories. I don't know about funny ones, but. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever worked in a data center environment, but yeah, okay. So, I mean, back in the 90s, so it's a bit of an old style data center now. I was I was pulling a late one, laying fiber, and, and we used to have the raised floor design. You'd get the tile lifter and all this sort of thing. Oh, it must have been about 2 a.m., I think. And we had this huge IBM tape robot in this great big glass enclosure, and it was oh, I don't know, 50 meters long, maybe thing on tank tracks with a big grabby arm and I don't know, probably north of a 200,000 um, IBM cartridges in the rack. And it's, it's sound asleep because it's the middle of the night and it's just all sitting there. Mm, we'll find. Yeah. And I've got to run cable under this enclosure and I'm like, oh, he's Robbie's, Robbie, we used to call him, Robbie the robot. Robbie's asleep, that'll be all right. So... I, mean, I don't know what health and safety would say these days, but in the 90s, if you had to run fiber, you lifted one tile, your oppo lifted the tile you were going to come up, come up from about 100 meters away. You got in the cavity with the cable spool in your hand and just sort of bear crawled under the floor until you, you know, you're just feeling like a mole looking for the light ahead of the, the other tile you're going to come up out of. I'm, I really hope it's not allowed anymore. But I was right under the robot enclosure, well, I would know some bastard must have started a batch job on the mainframe as this thing suddenly roared into life, charged over my head, and I, oh, I thought the world was ending. It's just like an earthquake. <laughs> oh, I don't like this. <laughs> oh, dear me. Absolutely bonkers. The longest crawl of your life, huh? It, it was, yeah. It was nobody's favourite job. I was the trainee at the time, and as I was sending down, he's only little. Was like, oh, do I have to? <laughs> oh no! If I never have to lay another fibre optic again in my life, it'll be too soon. I'll tell you. <clears throat> but no, no. Thankfully, those days are long past. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny that what used to be a huge enclosure big mainframe rooms full is now mm. just you put in your pocket yeah oh it's nuts isn't it absolutely nuts how much it's changed yeah 
Yeah, it's wild. Everything's got so boring as well. I mean, the last time I was physically in a data center is probably about five years ago. But it's just rows of wardrobes, isn't it? And you just think, oh, nothing to look at anymore, is there? You know, where's the big flashing lights and spinny things and robots running up and down? It's none of that anymore. It's just oh. another, another server rack, big whoop. <laughs> Just green and red lights and yeah oh and uh, I don't think they even still have the night riders on the back anymore which is, is very boring yeah it's pretty pretty yeah. bland yeah they get the good old days right yeah oh definitely man yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's wild how far we've come from mm. even ten years ago it's it's amazing. oh it, it is I mean you think that there's more computing power on a cheap ass Samsung now than there was on the moon rocket you know? it's incredible yeah, it yeah is absolutely incredible. yeah. This is why I could never write science fiction. I, I, I don't know how anybody writes science fiction that isn't obsolete five years after it's published. Unless you're doing ridiculously far future stuff where it's basically magic anyway. Yeah. Technology is changing so fast. You just, I mean, I love Neuromancer, you know, the, the, the seminal cyberpunk book it's it's wonderfully written and it was hugely influential and it's you read it now and it's just bollocks <laughs> i mean this guy's smuggling five megabytes of memory oh, do me a favor <laughs> I'm, I'm sure at the time it was written in oh i think it was 1983 84 maybe that probably sounded an impossible amount but impossible don't stay impossible for more than a couple of years in it does it yeah yeah, yeah. Am- amazing stuff. Oh no, I, I couldn't do that. That's just mm, too difficult. <laughs> I was I was surprised how influential that because I hadn't read it until last year. But there's so many things that came from that book. It's really oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, th- I think again, it's it's one of those things that isn't what it is. It's not really a sci-fi book, is it? It's a noir PI story with a bit of sci-fi slapped on it and he accidentally invented virtual reality whilst doing it well despite he knew absolutely nothing about computers he wrote neuromancer on a typewriter you know and he he just made everything up and it started to sort of accidentally all come true (laughs) it's amazing but then he still got payphones he foresaw virtual reality, which was nobody had even dreamed of at the time, but didn't foresee mobile phones. And you just think, oh, a sci-fi writer's lot is not happy one, is it? <laughs> you know, it got me thinking reading that book is did did he get those predictions right or did they come to be because of that book? Oh, now well that's a question, isn't it? I, I don't know. I mean, obviously the AI is still a distant pipe dream. But the virtual reality stuff, I mean, did we invent virtual reality because he dreamed it up and people went, oh, that's cool. Let's see if we can do it. <laughs> I don't I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me, to be honest. <clears throat> but no, it's, uh, some of it's strangely prophetic. It really is. It really is. Mm. And uh, we did have a couple of questions. Let me pull them up here on Twitter if I can find them. So the first one was from uh, Boiled Jellyfish. And he wants to know, okay. yeah, the origin story of Stan the Railway Cat. So Stan the Railway Cat, honest to God, I am more famous on Twitter for my cat than I am for anything I've ever written. <laughs> Everybody loves my cat. So he's, he's a, I, I don't know is the origin story. This, I wish I did. But he's just a rescue. From, and, um, you know, we got him from the rescue place last January. And they called him Stan. No, nobody had any clue what his original name was because he was found stray and i thought stan yeah kind of suits him we'll keep that but apparently he'd been brought in by the station master of a tiny little provincial whistle stop railway station because he'd been living living stray by the railway tracks i said Mm. oh this is stan he was he was found by the railway and i just thought stan the railway cat would be a great name for a kid's book so so he just dark and he's quite photogenic so every time i put a picture of him on twitter i just hashtag it stand the railway cats and I, I swear half my twitter followers at least are only there for the cats and probably never read one of my books <laughs> <laughs> twitter's a good place to have a cat but no i i wish i knew his origins i've no idea yeah, but come, there you yeah go. he's come, a lovely boy come for the cat and stay for the books right that's the one yeah that's it. well i always i always say everybody in this house works and Stan's job is in PR. 
<coughs> excuse me. <laughs> and uh, Nick Borelli wants to know about your love of whiskey and Motorhead. Oh, well, love of whiskey, self-explanatory, isn't anybody who doesn't know whiskey's got something wrong with them. Yeah. Motorhead. Oh, I've always loved Motorhead since I was oh, 14 or so. I, I first discovered heavy metal when I was in high school, as most people do. Uh, the first album I ever bought was Adam Ant's Kings of the World Frontier. And then uh, somebody introduced, somebody at school introduced me to Iron Maiden. And I was like, oh, I'll have some of that. And I got, got a couple of their albums. And then um, I don't think I actually owned a Motorhead album, but we live in a, a not very large provincial city on the east coast of England with a couple of hours outside London. And um, it's a university city. And it's got a, a very small concert venue. And some bands started coming now and again. And I was just about getting old enough to be allowed to go to a gig on my own with my friends from school. And uh, the first band I ever saw actually was Zodiac Mind Warp and the Love Reaction. They were just this bewildering mixture of greaser rock and hippie shit. <laughs> and I, was, I was like, oh, I like this. This is fun. And, you know, they're not age carding anybody at the bar. So, yeah, we'll have some of this. We'll be back, boys. You know? yeah. And then Motorhead played, and it was like, Oh, oh, I like that cover art. Have you got any? No, I ain't got any. No, I ain't got any. I'll just go anyway. So it was, I was, it, live music used to be cheap. Mm. Back, oh, I mean, even for the, you know, accounted for inflation, it was gig tickets for about an eighth of what they bloody are now. But we went to see Motorhead, and I had never heard anything so loud in my life. I was just like, oh, we like this. You know, that was that was the thing for the next week at school. If you hadn't gone to Motorhead, you weren't anyone, you know. What I mean? <laughs> but they kept coming back. So I mean hardly anybody you've really heard of ever plays Norwich. You you don't get Iron Maiden play here or Def Leppard or anybody like that. But but Motorhead, we I think we were on their warm-up gig circuit and they played nearly every year and it was like, go to Motorhead, oh yeah, you'll go to Motorhead. <laughs> It was the 80s. We were young lads and a bit of naughty boys, and there wasn't much else to do in Norwich, to be honest. So. How many times did you see them in, in a concert? Oh, God. Eight, at least, I would have thought. Oh, wow. I, I think they're probably tied with the damned for band I've seen the most times, purely because, again, they used to play here when most other people didn't. I mean, I've, I've seen, I only managed to see Metallica twice, so I made them once, but... Motorhead keep coming to me, so it's like, well, dead. Obviously, sadly lost Lemmy now, so there won't be any more Motorhead gigs. But they, they were good times. There's those few years in, in your sort of, well, certainly for lads, isn't there? In, in your teenage years, where you were utterly and tribally defined by music. Yeah, it's, it is the most important thing in the world between about I don't know, fourteen and eighteen at least. And yeah. So yeah, no, they were good days. <laughs> so oh, I'll always love Motorhead for that. That's great. And uh, so with whiskey, I wanted to ask you about whiskey and get your get your take on what's your favorite daytime sipper? What's your what's sipping? If you just want to sip. Uh, oh, the Glenlivet, I think, for a for a sipper. Some, something a bit more challenging of an evening, something like Lefroy or Smokehead. Then we'll sort of PCI lay, but I find Space Side's the easiest, easiest whiskeys to drink, definitely. Mm. A little bit too easy, according to my wife. But yeah. anyway, I won't go into that. <laughs> <laughs> with uh, with Lafroy, I, get, I forget the name of it. The Pete, the really heavy Pete. Do you love the? Mm, the yeah. Do you, do you like the Pete? Oh yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, Ardbeg's a good one as well. If you like that sort of thing, that's mm -hmm. extremely. Good. I don't know how available that's going to be in the states. We should certainly should be able to get Lafroy over there. Yeah, I actually have some some Lafroy on the on the counter in there. And oh, okay. Uh, yeah. It's really good stuff, and it's, mm. we always uh, my, my my friends don't enjoy it as much, so it's always mine. So oh, fun. what a shame! Yeah, <laughs> oh, man. yeah, yeah. Merry Christmas, and then it ends up on my counter, so it's a win-win. That's all good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what what whiskey do you? What's your special occasion whiskey? Oh, um, yeah, special occasion whiskey. Dalmore, very mm. fond of the Dalmore. That's, that's quite pricey, but it is it is nice. And um oh yeah, McCallum twenty year old. Ooh. That's exceptional. That that's definitely special occasion money, but it is really, really nice. Yeah. Do you have a, a do you have a, a special do you celebrate when you finish a book? Is there something you do to kind of 
let you know unwind. I, I don't have rituals. I mean, by the time I've finished finished a book, I'm just sort of ready to full town. Really. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I'm I'm nearly fifty years old. I'm I'm past the going out on the town to celebrate things. I was just like, oh, I'm just going to sit and fall asleep in my armchair with a bottle of whiskey and worry about it all in the morning. You know? And uh, Luke Tarzian wanted to know about your cat. We can talk about your cat. And, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, everybody wants to know about the cat. Oh, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> you made a name for yourself. It's good. good. Like I said, Twitter is a good place to own a cat. Oh, yeah, people, definitely. People love cats. Yeah. So do you have a favorite album that you'll never get tired of? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, two. They're both by Ronnie James Dio. So um, Last in Line and um, Holy Diver, two of my mm. absolute all-time favorite albums. Dio, I think, I mean, he's a classically trained vocalist. Uh, his range was absolutely staggering. And I mean, I've been a Black Sabbath fan forever anyway. You know, he had a good run in Sabbath and took a lot of that style with him into the solo band and uh, yeah a lot of what he picked up in rainbow as well but there will never be another singer like Dio, as far as i'm concerned because hmm. i mean i i love nearly every genre of heavy metal but i only like singers who sing i i can't be doing with the the death growling kind of thing it doesn't do yeah. it for me but now singers like Dio and Ozzy and Bruce Dickinson from Iron Maiden, you know, they could actually sing, and that's that's what you want. But but I love the heavy music that goes behind it, and I think the the Dio albums absolutely encompass everything I love about heavy metal. Fantastic stuff. Good stuff. And do do you listen to music while you write? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Definitely, definitely. I I tend to have sort of thematic soundtrack albums for books or at least for series as i mean i wrote most of the Birdman books to 70s punk music you know mm. clash and joy to burn the jam and sex pistols and that kind of thing you know, real angry oi sort of stuff <laughs> and all of war for the rose throne is to classical metal so a lot a lot of Dio, fair bit of sabbath bit of iron maiden that kind of thing but yeah oh no i have to have music on what i'm writing Definitely, I, I stop. A lot of the time, I stop even hearing it after a while. But it's it's the rhythm of it, and it's it's really it's always really familiar stuff that I know so well. It doesn't matter if I stop hearing it, and I'll be hacking away at the keys, and something like, "Oh, we're on track eight. Where'd the last three go? Oh, never mind. We've written another fifteen hundred words. That's fine. Put it on repeat. Go again. <laughs> Just well, but it'd probably drive a lot of people off the wall. But it, that works for me. But then I sort of read about other people that right in coffee shops and i was like oh god how can you with people talking and bustling and clattering no shut up and go away and <laughs> let me shut myself away with my hundred decibel heavy metal and i can get some work done you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're, oh, we're all different in how we work you know yeah. something's work what works for one right it just doesn't isn't going to work for another but it's just how it is you know? definitely true and uh, there's a couple of questions I like to ask every uh, every person I talk to. Yeah. And the first one is, do you have any favorite family recipes? Oh, but I could burn water, mate. Honestly, I'm I have some favorite things my wife cooks. Yeah. <laughs> I am not I'm not even allowed in the kitchen to operate anything more serious than the kettle. So <laughs> no, no. I mean, I think uh, a sadly lost family recipe. My my nan, when I was a kid, used to make the world's best apple pie. She had three apple trees in her garden. It was always made with apples from her own garden. It was, oh, wow. oh, it was probably 50% sugar, honestly, but it was absolutely glorious. But sadly, that recipe went when nan did. So, mm. uh, I don't know. But no, my wife's a really good cook, and she enjoys cooking. So, we, I don't think she'd want me allowed, let loose in the kitchen anyway. So, you know. Arrangement kind of works for us. Yeah, me too. I, I I'll screw up a bowl of cereal, so thankfully my wife likes uh-huh. to cook, so I, I let her handle that part. It's all good. So, uh, was there ever a hobby that you wanted to try, but when you tried it, you didn't enjoy it? Oh, I didn't enjoy it. I'm not sure there was really. I mean, my main hobbies outside of writing used to be martial arts and weightlifting 
Um, you can see I've still got the weights mm. rig behind me. Um, I, I still do that a bit now and again. Martial arts I did for ooh, a long time. I forget exactly how long. I got, got my Black Sash and Instructor Certificate and everything mm. in uh, Dallas Kung Fu. But it, it just came down to time in the end because, you know, I work a full-time corporate day job like you know, most authors do, to be honest. And I wanted to write and I wanted to lift and our martial arts went out the window in the end as the thing, you know, the, something had to give. Yeah. And that was the one that went. And uh, yeah, I got into powerlifting. And again, I, that's gone a bit by the by, to be honest, because it's just time. I, I don't know. I find you know, the older I get, the less time I got. And I was like, I'm sure it's supposed to be the other way around. But you know, I mean, between working a day job, writing, editing running the business side of being a writer and you know doing this kind of thing which which i do really enjoy but it, it's still time you know i was two hours on um, panels yesterday i'm doing this now and i'm thinking well by the time i've finished talking to you it's going to be you know up past nine maybe i think i'd just like to sit and have a re read for a little while before yeah. i go to bed and actually relax for some time you know what i mean <laughs> and that's still you know you've still got to mow the lawn and yeah. do stuff around the house and just the sort of general business of keeping life running. And you think, oh, God, there really isn't any more time for hobbies, unfortunately, than, than what I do now. Yeah, but now I, I don't there's anything I abandoned because I discovered I didn't like it. There's a lot of things I didn't start because I knew I'd never be any good at them. Mm -hmm. I am a bit one of those people that if I don't think I'll be good at something, I'm not going to do it at all. If you know what I mean, which oh, yeah. is probably probably not a great way to be, but so like I oh somebody gave me an electric guitar once when I was about nineteen, and I thought oh yeah I'm not going to be a rock star, am I? Because you know everybody's going to be a rock star when they're nineteen, and I had one guitar lesson, and I was like oh, fuck this, I can't do this. <laughs> this is no much harder than it looks. Now I'm not even going to try. <laughs> oh, but, massive yeah. character flaw that is, I know, but that's just how I am. Yeah, well, I, I just have two more questions for you. So sure. uh, the the first one is, has your experience with martial arts helped you write combat scenes or action scenes? I I don't know. I've been asked this before, and I can't remember what I said now. I mean, I I don't write fist fight scenes. Everybody in my world is armed because right. in in you know certainly in gangland circles, and especially in gangland circles in about sixteen hundred, everybody was armed to the teeth at all times, and nobody thought any any different of it. But I think it's I think to an extent it's taught me that real fights are very short mm. and extremely unpleasant. And you don't get these long drawn out fencing matches up and down stairs. It doesn't happen. You know what I mean? It's oh, I don't know if you know um Christian Cameron on Twitter. I don't think so. Oh, oh, he's he's a fascinating man. He really is. He he writes fantasy as Miles Cameron, science fiction as Christian Cameron. And um, he's an incredibly accomplished historical sword fighter and reenactor. And he does a series on Twitter called Writing Fighting, hmm. where he's, he demonstrates different plays from the sword manuals and things. And none of his sword fights that he's shown go last more than about two seconds flat. It's, it is that quick that somebody who knows what they're doing will destroy you. It's as simple oh. as that. It's unbelievable. So I've I've definitely rolled that into the books. It's you know a kick, a shove, a stab, done. That's it. No fencing yeah. matches. No, just knife him and get on with your day. <laughs> and the uh, the last question I have for you is: What was your first job? My first job. Well, my very first job actually. We have a thing in the UK called work experience. I don't know if you do it in the states. And when you're about two years from graduating high school. You, you have to go out and find, or you're, usually your dad leans on one of his mates at their company, to find you somewhere to go and experience being at work for a, couple, a week or two weeks or whatever it is. And my dad's friend at the time worked on the local newspaper as a journalist. So I did, I was I was technically a cub reporter for a fortnight when I was 15. <laughs> but after after that, when I when I didn't go to college, when I finished high school, I just went to work at a, a local corporate and what was I doing? Something soul destroyingly tedious office admin shit. I can't even remember what it was now. 
But as soon as I possibly could, I started learning IT and escaped into the grown-up world. <laughs> so yeah, I've I've been corporate IT nearly all my working life. Yeah. It's a, it was a good field to get into at that time. Definitely. Oh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I've now got out of data centers, as I say, because I've, I've, that's a that's a dying field. It really is. And I've just actually just last week started a new role in the same company, but in mm-hmm. cybersecurity, which is. It is currently the good area to get into, oh, yeah. sort of thing, and yeah, no, that'll do me till I can retire. No. Yeah, it's a good field to be in, especially now. Definitely, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's interesting so, as well. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Is it going to be the the uh, the place to be for all the actions? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I, I know you're really busy. So I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. So thanks again. For, oh, it's been good to speak to you. Yeah. yeah, thanks for having me on. Cheers, everyone. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you, Peter. I'm always, uh,